Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow into the $1.3 trillion business of sports, and you are on the record. We have lacrosse coming up later today with a renowned coach and inspirational opinion leader in the field. But first, we have a number of issues of significance after Thanksgiving, and we start with the opening drive, the top four weekly stories, one through four. Number one, the Ohio State-Michigan game recorded the priciest ticket in rivalry history. The average price, no, cheapest price, 676 bucks. The average price on the secondary market, over $1,300, 50-yard line, 6400 Lowest get-in price ever seen came in the 2013 game when the Wolverines stumbled to a 7-6 and record under then-head coach Brady Hoke. Bottom line is the school filed a temporary restraining order to try to get their leader, the Harbaugh coach legacy, Jim, back on the field. Not enough really didn't matter anyway with a game in all material contexts. That's number one. Number two, the military branches are tapping into NILs, but the service academy athletes are left out. Deals come with a bit of dissonance for service academy athletes, not able to strike NIL deals in the same way other college athletes are allowed to earn money for the use of their likenesses. The UConn guard Paige Buchers NHL deal with Go Army in the U.S. Army's recruiting arm, believed to be the first time a college athlete signed an NIL partnership with the military branch. Then in October, the Marines ran a campaign with eight college football players, including Oregon State quarterback DJ Alungale and, and Georgia running back Kevin Milton and UCLA quarterback Chase Griffin. Unlike other college athletes, those at service academies are classified as employees of their respective military branches, meaning they're subject to the federal law prohibiting military members from using public office for private gain. So, no, Air Force's 8-0 start to the football season did not lead to NIL cash for its players. And, no, the annual Army-Navy game in December, the biggest event on the service academy sports calendar, is not a trampoline to NIL deals. All of the other athletes we talked about, raking it in, but not our military service uh, uh, athletes. Figure out how to change that, huh? Number two. Number three, Amazon, their head, confirms the interest in streaming NBA playoffs. They're interested in acquiring the U.S. domestic rights for those playoffs. And the tech giant, widely linked with a move for the world's premier basketball competition to complement its well-received exclusive coverage of TNF, Thursday Night Football. Jay Marine, Amazon's global head of sports, told the Marchand on Iran Sports Media podcast, the NBA's global appeal and youthful fan base made it an ideal candidate for its portfolio. He acknowledged that there were differences between the NFL, 17 regular games a year, obviously, and the NBA, the sides playing 82. 
This means while each NFL game is valuable and it carried some significance, much more in national interest, many NBA matches more valuable to fans of individual teams and players. Given Amazon's strategy is focused on acquiring rights that add value to prime subscriptions rather than comprehensive coverage, Marines suggested the playoffs would be of great interest to the company. We don't need to have everything. We can be selective. (laughs) Interesting comment. He noted that in several European territories, it has rights to a single UEFA Championship League fixture each match day, with other broadcasters having the rights to the remaining inventory. They want things to be meaningful and big enough with the largest tier. The NBA, true on all accounts and a different because of the game volume. For us, meaning Amazon, would playoffs be an important part of a bid? Yeah, that's fair to say, he said. Amazon is preparing for a significant milestone in its short sports broadcasting history. The first ever live broadcast of the NFL game on Black Friday will see the ratings are going to be off the charts. Amazon hopes to lure as many viewers into its retail ecosystem and will use the Black Friday game as a showcase to cover broadcast innovations. They're not getting away from football, he said, but they're going to emphasize a number of other issues as well. And that's number three. And finally, the big issue of the week for opening drive is number four. The Knicks owner, James Dolan, is stepping away from NBA league-related responsibilities while his team sues another. In a memo sent to Commissioner Adam Silver and the league's other 29 owners, Dolan resigned from his position on the NBA Board of Governors Influential Advisory Committee, Finance, and Media Committees. The general counsel has already begun sitting in for Dolan's responsibilities, and Dolan wrote in the memo, it comes in the wake of the Knicks suing the Toronto Raptors for $10 million bucks, along with the New York assistant video coordinator passing along proprietary information to the Raptors when he joined their staff this season. He's very busy with his duties and his family of companies. He said, I need to apply my team where I can be most productive. The ESPN report also notes that Dolan was the only owner to vote against otherwise unanimous decision to allow the sale of the Charlotte Hornets for Michael Jordan to Rick Schnall and Gabe Plotkin and the WNBA expansion to the Bay Area. So he may be the Al Davis of the NBA. We'll just have to see. Box lacrosse, national lacrosse, outdoor lacrosse, indoor, Olympics, whole host of issues. Wendy Crydell's seen it all. 25-year experience at Bryn Mawr Academy, Sacred Heart in Palo Alto. Now she is clearly somebody who can speak about all of these issues. Being around the Baltimore area was clearly important in the early 2000s. Now it's a national and international game. Outdoor, indoor, sponsorship, television, Olympics. She knows it all. Here she is right now. We cover all sports and the business of all sports. It's prolific because it's not just sports, it's entertainment. And probably most important is all of these sports in all kinds have one thing in common. They depend on a steady stream of youth, kids, high talented individuals restocking, as it were, as well as the icons in each individual sport, protecting the integrity and the future of the game. We have both. Wendy Crydell. Hi, Wendy. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Rick? We'll talk from the perspective of uh, lacrosse in general 
it's not one of those sports that gets mainstream, but yet with the uh, MLL, with the Premier League, with Major Indoor Lacrosse League, there's a whole lot going on as well. So how do you get into it? How do you become so successful? And, uh, you know, your, your, your 25 years uh, clearly is, is, is very unique. So it took a lot of dedication and vision as well. Yeah. And actually, I think we're hit, hitting something like 33 years. You know, I got into it um, probably by dumb luck in college. Um, you know, had the I didn't play lacrosse until I got to college. I played field hockey and basketball and softball, actually. And I met the lacrosse coach on campus t- when I was taking a phys ed class and um, got asked to give it a try and fell in love with the sport right away. And Pretty much from the time I graduated college, which was a long time ago, 1988, um, I started coaching. Been, you know, here at Sacred Heart for the last, um, I think I'm about to start my eighth year coaching here. Um, and aside from, you know, other things with U19s and youth, and I've, I've, I've gotten a good smattering of experiences. Um, why so successful? Um, right place, right time. Um, you know, had a lot of really motivated athletes. Um, you know, I've had some great mentors, uh, maybe a little bit of dumb luck, uh, and a lot of love of being around kids and developing them. And, um, you know, I don't know, I guess just stick, stick with itness. You know, I still, I still really enjoy doing it. I, I laugh, um, you know, I get made fun of a little bit, um, you know, an administrator in my school, most of the my other administrators don't understand sports at all. And they don't actually get why it is I'm willing to give my time and of myself. And I don't really get it that they don't understand why it's so valuable as an educator. So, you know, I guess the fact that I just really enjoy what I get to do. Let, let's let's stay with the youth perspective for a, while, for a little while, then we're more morph into the to the major leagues because they're all connected. Uh, 20, 30 X years ago, when you were just starting out uh, in the uh, kind of coaching world in it, uh, was there a, dis- uh, was it difficult to get the best athletes to play lacrosse versus, you know, tennis or, or maybe golf? I don't know what the, certainly football, baseball, the mainstream sports in, in the, the Baltimore and the, in the uh, mid Atlantic area, lacrosse would be considered a mainstream sport but still it's a there's a there's a national stretch there has it was it difficult then and is it easier today it's definitely easier today because the sport really has become much more mainstream um i think streaming college games i mean the fact that on any given saturday and sunday i can sit at home and watch multiple college lacrosse games and the access to that now is making people really pay attention. Um, the change in some of concussion policy in football is drawing more boys to boys lacrosse. Um, you know, my very first coaching stint, uh, you know, many years ago, I coached um, a high school team that we had 14 girls, you know, and you field 12 at a time. Um, there were only a handful of them at best that had ever picked up a lacrosse stick before. And again, and this is in suburban Baltimore. Um, but I would say the mid Atlantic region probably always has, you know, had great, um, participation, um, in lacrosse because they had been, their families played, their grandparents played, their parents played. Um, but you know, now here in California, you know, watching the, the youth game grow, 
um, you know, our biggest challenge is getting qualified coaches um, and people that know the game to meet the, the needs of kids that want to play now. Is there a, uh, is it a change in attitude? Uh, it's, as you said, it was a legacy issue before the grandpa and the father and the mother would play. So you're going to play. Uh, and now it sounds like on the West coast where you are today, which is uh, farther away from the heart of lacrosse, the athletes see an advantage of playing because they like the sport. They see an opportunity to succeed, but they love the sport. Is, is that, is that kind of where things are today and it's slowly evolving? Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think again, the people seeing the game and experiencing the game and enjoying it. Um, I also think areas that were heavily populated by soccer only um, realized that there were only so many soccer's that could make it to the soccer players that could make it to the elite level. And so athletes that succeeded at soccer um, that maybe weren't succeeding at the level they wanted to picked up lacrosse. Um, so, you know, they're giving, again, the sheer number of athletes on the West Coast um, and not having as many sports to participate in helped the growth of the game. So, you know, girls in particular were playing um, soccer and volleyball, but there wasn't, you know, that this other like, you know, field hockey is sort of, it's not, it's, if anything, it's declining on the West Coast. And I think, you know, the need for that team sport, high energy, high athleticism, you know, it helped grow the game. Um, and again, Title IX, growing it at the collegiate level is helping funnel kids like, okay, wait, there's opportunity for us. And I think they saw other ways not as easy because they were inundated with people. Again, volleyball, soccer, traditionally. Well, Title IX locks, uh, uh, certainly protects certain programs, and not all, but certain programs. But, but then as the business has evolved, you look at the top levels, or at least the high visibility levels, the major indoor lacrosse league, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, MLL, the National Lacrosse League, uh, you know, the box lacrosse. Uh, there's been a lot of evolution in the indoor game and the outdoor game in the last four years, let alone the last 30 or 40. Uh, is the business professionally moving in the right direction? Shoo, I don't know. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, and again, and, and the men's game has a full-on established league. The women's game now has, they had more than one league. Now they're athletes unlimited and they run, you know, pretty differing versions of the game, which I think are keeping it exciting. What I think is awesome is that they're utilizing um, access to younger players in the summertime so that they've got a fan base and they make it accessible for kids to get to see them play in the summertime when their club teams are competing in hotbed regions. Um, and I think that's incredibly helpful. Again, I do feel like the visibility, the professional women's um, uh, lacrosse is not currently, at least I have not seen that streamed, but the men's games, um, the professional league is, you know, seen on ESPN two quite a bit. I, you know, watch it myself. The box leagues are also televised. And I think that the more people see it and see the pace of the game and how fun it is to play, I think that, again, that's driving, you know, youth players into the game. What about the Olympics? Would this ever be an Olympic sport? Well, I mean, it's in the process to be experimental sport yeah, right. in 2028. Yep. Um, you know, I think very soon, actually, we're going to hear if it gets in. I know, you know, that, again, it's about changing the format. They're going to play nine on nine. I believe that's correct. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think it's going to happen. I think we have enough national. I've watched the international game. We've got far more countries um, that are participating. And I think that that's going to help us drive right into Olympics. Sponsorship, television, it's always a catch-22. You need more sponsors to get on TV. And you need TV to get sponsors interested. The sponsorship of lacrosse generally, and this is too much of a generalization, has been endemic. The sticks, the, 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 uh, the, the goals. Uh, have we gotten to a point where there are major national sponsors that are willing to spend money on the business of lacrosse beyond just equipment manufacturers? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, it's certainly not my purview, but I would say that, you know, so many athletes, because again, I don't, there's not too many professional lacrosse players that are making a living on that. And a lot of our young professionals are in finance. Um, and, you know, I feel like those companies in and of themselves see the value of making connection. First of all, they want to hire athletes um, and their companies are, you know, um, producing great employees. And I think that also can strike up sponsorship. You know, Nike, um, certainly, you know, they are in the, the lacrosse equipment business, you know, that they are actually selling, you know, stick heads and they're the only, you know, I mean, an Under Armour is dabbled in it as well. Um, it's not just the gear, but I mean, not just the physical, like the clothing and shoes, things like that. But, you know, they are producing sticks um, under the STX brand. And I think that and uh, the fact that they're putting money in that way, um, I feel like the certainly the sports drink market and anything that would, you know, fun or want to sponsor, you know, a football game is going to be equally as likely to to take on a lacrosse sponsorship. But I do, again, see, you know, we're on the cusp of all of this television, is that a word? Um, just because and streaming ability. So, you know, you can, can watch whether it's through a college situation or not. And if you've got a connection to the internet, you know, you can stream a game that probably is very low budget compared to, you know, actually nationally televising a game, you know, on network TV. And I think that's one of the keys for future growth. You would assume, you know, Paul Rabel, who uh, I, I guess is is, a, is certainly well known in your industry and not as well known in others, but he was the founder of the premier uh, lacrosse league in, eight, in 18 and then after COVID even more and on television. He said the key is to basically start the professional business almost like a Silicon Valley startup. Make sure you have the investors, the television pieces, the sponsorship pieces, the franchise pieces, easier said than done, but you have enough people in the industry that are looking to create the right professional models so it does sustain in the future? Well, I mean, again, for better, for worse, and in some ways, in my opinion, maybe for worse, I mean, lacrosse is a money game. Like, I, you know, it has been a sport, sadly, that people that have means have participated in traditionally and you know, as someone that's a growth minded person and how do we grow the game and trying to get sticks in hands of underserved um, athletes, you know, I think we have more trouble doing that than we do finding funds to keep the sport going because there is, in fact, um, you know, many people that have participated that are um, able to help fund the game.
Well, you know, I think that the skills transfer really well. Um, you know, we are seeing just a huge growth in box lacrosse um, in the States that we didn't have at all before. And that's been something the Canadians have been doing, you know, for far longer. Um, it's certainly one, one hand washes the other. It really, um, in some ways helps girls even more so than boys, because, you know, when they're playing box, they're playing with different equipment. It's a little more physical, um, you know, and I think that that helps their skill development at a much quicker pace. Um, but I don't, I don't see it becoming mutually exclusive where you're only, you only can play box or you only can play outdoor. What I do see happening, and again, the Olympics probably part of driving this and, um, is that, you know, wanting to take the game. So the men tradition, they play with 10 players at a time and the women play with 12 and the desire to take field lacrosse. So outdoor lacrosse to you and reduce the number of players to make more touches on the ball to even make a game that's already fast, faster. And so that is almost causing a mesh of indoor and outdoor, because again, indoor, you're playing with six and outdoor. I think, you know, we have sixes leagues and again, shorter field. So it, they're becoming more similar. I don't know if it's going to overall forever, meaning overhaul the game forever. I'm still not sure that, um, outdoor lacrosse is going to ultimately change and reduce its number of players forever. But I know that in certain settings, it is definitely going to happen. Yeah, but you're a purist. And so those who like, for example, rugby folks who talk about the rugby sevens as blasphemous, and all of a sudden that ends up in the Olympics. And so I guess you got to go where the money is. So, you know, predict where it is going. I mean, we don't know, right? But it'll consolidate at some point. I mean, you know, I don't know if forever it's going to become one thing because I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot I like about, you know, sixes. And, you know, we use it a lot, especially when we're doing, you know, off-season training. It's fast. There's a lot of touches. You know, what's hard is from the standpoint of, you know, if on my, again, my high school team, for an example, a normal roster for me is 22 kids. Um, that's given a lot of kids opportunity to play in general. So if you're only playing six at a time, then, you know, your roster size is cut. And so those things have a trickle up effect, effect colleges and recruiting dollars and all of those things. So I think there'll be a push and pull on the money side of that. But I think the game, watching the game, playing the game with less players, it's exciting and it's fast and it's fun. And so, you know, I don't know if it'll ultimately that's forever for the sport, but I do see it definitely happening from different versions of the game. I think that will happen. Just a couple more to kind of talk about the future. The kids who are in your purview, obviously they like their coach, but they also see a value in exploring other uh, athletic opportunities as well. Do you see it as a sport where you'll ultimately be able to offer NIL, uh, be able to talk about dollars that might be available for these kids down the road in college programs or, you know, show me the money, where's the money, a kid that's going to be interested in uh, ladies or pro, or turning pro on the women's golf tour or tennis tour. How do you, how do you keep her at home in lacrosse? I mean, I, I think we're a long ways from that kind of money in women's lacrosse. I mean, I think there's a lot of, I, I, right now, I think that kids and families get very fixated on college admissions and 
and maybe scholarship dollars. Like I think that that is a bonus, but right now it's a lot about how do I play? How do I get an opportunity to play at the collegiate level? How do I align the fact that I'm a phenomenal student and it's incredibly hard to get into um, the top universities in the country and does it give me a leg up if I'm a, you know, a top recruit and, you know, add that if you're really that good, are you getting scholarship dollars that are helping fund your way through college? Um, I think, you know, there's not a, I don't, I don't necessarily see in my career lifetime, you know, professional money that's going to, you know, create um, a ton of jobs for women to, you know, to have a career in women's lacrosse. What I am seeing happen though is broadcasting. That, you know, I see a lot of women, you know, and listen to them on the weekends and they're doing game after game every weekend. And I think that that's opening up opportunity that way. Um, but, you know, we're long ways, you know, lacrosse, whether it's women's or men's from, you know, being NCAA football and having, you know, actual money for players to earn while they're earning their education. Well, and the other thing too, is, as you said, it's a long way away and, you know, it, 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 it's not possible that, you know, the school that's so close to you, Stanford and then Cal, uh, you know, they're not ever going to go to the Atlantic coast and play. Oh, wait, they're going to the ACC. <laughs> so, so the, you know, so my question here quick is, you know, Stanford and Duke, I mean, you know, now, now you, now you get to go see the ACC, uh, lacrosse programs firsthand. It, it, it's it's got to be some benefit to people in your industry. Well, I'm. I mean, the biggest thing that I'm excited about is that I I think it's going to force Stanford. I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen, but you know, uh, uh, force Stanford hand. You know, uh, Bernard uh, Muir is going to kill me. Um, you know that uh, um, that they have to add a men's lacrosse program because it's going to be hard. You know, they've been club for a long time, and there's been nobody west of now Utah. For them to play um, that's you know non-club and so I'm really hoping that that helps drive you know more men out here that may help us grow the game um, I do think you know it can help open up you know the rest of the west coast and and if they you know if all of a sudden Stanford's got a team is Cal gonna add a team how do we get you know all of these other you know big schools that are out here to add a men's lacrosse program and then some of them that don't have the women's game, they will fall, fall suit right alongside. So, you know, I'm ecstatic for that. Uh, you know, I think that it um, will, you know, be interesting to see. I don't know if it's going to help football. You know, I don't know that ACC football compared to Pac-12 football is, is comparable. Um, but, you know, for sure from a lacrosse standpoint, and I think in the reverse from a soccer standpoint, you know, I don't know how the ACC feels about having, you know, Stanford soccer joining them. But I think that's really going to, you know, rattle some, rattle some programs. Grab bag segment, the top tech, top gaming, and top philanthropy issues for the week. Let's start with tech. Well, inside the tech challenge and the process, keeping the sport fishing championship broadcast afloat. Bet you didn't think we would cover that, but we cover everything. Mark Niefeld, he's the CEO and commissioner of the Sport Fishing Championship. He uses it as a validation for his two-year-old league's proof of concept. He promises any doubter he talks to that they'll see a blue marlin by the end of their day, no matter where they live. It's going to be a graphic tee, sometimes wearing a knit pullover or tie. 
you're in a coffee shop and someone has a vintage power poster, you see it everywhere. It's part of the fabric of Americana because it's adventure and outdoors. About a thousand with that. Everybody I say that to, I get a text later that day or the next time I see them, they say, Mark, you're right. It's a compelling and timely anecdote whose FSSFC just spent the last season giving viewers live shots of shimmering billfish with picturesque Atlanta and Gulf views. It's the first season in 2022 using extreme creativity to fuel live broadcasts. No internet to connect on the boats while miles from the shoreline meant tossing SIM cards into the water with the help of an air-filled trash bag, glow sticks, and a GPS ping. How about that? To be retrieved later by chase boats for the next day's broadcast. And in 2023, through Starlink connections, SFC has the ability to go out to boats for live shots of real ins in 5K, picking up audio from anglers via ambient mics and putting reporters out to teams to showcase the characters who make up the fishing community's fabric. Niefeld pointed out that SFC's events have a combined 500-plus years of operations but had no broadcast foundation. Now intact and bolstered by real-time action, Niefeld said SFC can now be creative in their production, airing on CBS Sports Network. Focus in 2023, the deployment of the technology and the ability to scale it across a large fleet of boats and create an entertaining live content. The 2023 season came with learning moments, but he also felt the broadcast production found its stride. A three-time sailfish world champion named Peter Miller, who's hosted his own show called Uncharted Waters, fished with uh, in his sixth season on the Discovering Channel. He also serves as an analyst on SFC broadcasts. Beginning to layer in the technology, red zone like <laughs> you watch fishing every 20 seconds, who's winning and who's not. Being able to join us not just with blocking and tackling, but really perfect the broadcast and the entertainment around what the competitions are. Nobody scoff. First of all, this is mainstream. Second of all, it's huge sponsorship. And third, it's a template for how to put on creative broadcasts so people can be entertained, and they certainly do it. You ought to watch it. It's clearly some great content I did for a little while, and it's certainly something that I'm going to focus on. You might even be able to bet on in the future. You never know. Second tech issue, the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association signed a tech fitness deal and a four-year partnership with the company iFit. The agreement will see iFit retrofit U.S. Ski and Snowboard's Park City Headquarters, the Center of Excellence, The two organizations have shared the headquarters for the past year with fitness equipment and technology that, according to the companies, will be utilized by more than 250 athletes and staff daily. iFit will also provide equipment to the U.S. Ski and Snowboard's mobile performance hub trailer. iFit, based in Logan, Utah, and owns fitness brands such as Nordic Track, Proform, Wider and free motion connects proprietary software to its hardware equipment that integrates personalized workouts for users. And in 2021, the company partnered with four of the six world marathon majors on a multi-year basis to allow its users to run the races virtually a big deal. It included London, Boston, New York, Chicago, and others. A great fit. Technology issue number three. 
Stadium to provide a legacy VTC with AI-powered volleyball broadcasts. They partnered with the company with a volleyball-only facility, that's legacy, with 11 courts in suburban St. Louis to broadcast matches for the next three years. The agreement is unique since they acquired the media rights and will participate in a revenue share with Legacy VTC on the monetization of those streaming broadcasts. Legacy VTC is the site of more than 14,000 volleyball contests each year, and the streams available on the stadium.net will increase the tech company uh, sponsorship and advertising options. A subsidiary of a German sports tech company in which Dirk Nowitzki invested in May gained traction, particularly in hockey and volleyball. We'd like to thank Sports Business Journal for that item. It's certainly important from a tech perspective. That's the tech part of the grab bag. Let's look at gambling. And the gambling issue is indirect here, but it does fit where we're going with this. It's Gonzaga. They will hold Big 12 talks, and they're heating up again. Houston Chronicle reports that the Big 12 school partners are looking at some movement with Gonzaga. The president's expected to meet this week to discuss expansion and could even vote on adding Gonzaga. And a source familiar with the situation confirmed to front office sports there has been some positive momentum around Gonzaga's potential move to the Big 12, but noted it isn't a slam dunk. Previously, 12 commissioner league, Big 12 uh, league's commissioner, Brett Yormark, has overwhelming support from conference presidents in his quest to add Gonzaga and was tasked with exploring it further. Adding Gonzaga would need 75% approval from conference members, and right now, that means nine out of the 12 schools. And aside from Texas and Oklahoma, who are leaving, that doesn't include them. And once the conference expands to 16 next summer, a vote would require 12. If Gonzaga joins, it becomes the 17th member. Speculation would then ramp up around UConn or another basketball powerhouse as candidates take the conference to 18 teams. Remember this issue. It's important. This is nothing to do, really, with buttressing the football programs. The basketball part of the conference would certainly be uh, positive and benefited if they had Gonzaga and certainly UConn. We'll have to see. And the unwritten statement about this is gambling opportunities abound as we explore what happens in the states that allow it as conference musical chairs continues. That's your gambling issues. And we end the grab bag this week with good sports and philanthropy. Few issues this week. Number one, UNC's field hockey phenom Aaron Matson becomes the NCAA title winning coach at 23, the youngest championship winning coach in D1 sports this year. She's 23 and she finished her first season at the helm of North Carolina's field hockey program, a 2 1 double overtime home win against Northwestern in the NCAA final. With the win, North Carolina extended its record for Division I field hockey championships. Old Dominion in second place with nine titles. UNC way above that. The bottom line is an incredible leadership process. Her Tar Heels notched a 12-3 and regular season record, then dispatched Virginia and Duke to win the ACC title and earn the number one seed in the NCAA tournament and took it from there. Congratulations to UNC. Congratulations to Aaron Matson. 
That's number one. Number two, the Denver Broncos sponsor the training of two service dogs in partnership with Canines for Warriors. Through the support of owner Kerry Walton Penner and head coach Sean Payton, they sponsor the training of two 11-month-old Black Lab brothers. If you're saying this is not significant because it's only two, back off. There's a lot more to it than just that. They're Bucky and Thunder, and they're really cute. They're born in Alabama and travel to Denver as part of their service dog training. They'll be paired with a veteran in need once they pass the training. And Sean Payton was excited along with board chair Kerry Walton Penner, the executive vice president of Community Impact, Allie Engelkin as well, affectionately named after two iconic Denver mascots, excited to see them grow into passionate and hardworking service dogs that will create a lasting impact on a Colorado veteran's life. And Canines for Warriors is a nonprofit organization committed to ending veteran suicide and provides highly trained service dogs to military veterans suffering from PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other invisible wounds of war. The bottom line is the Broncos' generosity allows the continuation of changing veterans' lives. On average, the pairing up with 16 veterans and service dogs each month by this organization, and to date, the organization has rescued more than 2,000 dogs and 1,000 veterans paired with the life-saving service dogs. Good luck to Becky and Thunder. They'll be the first-ever team dogs and made their debut in the Salute to Service game against the Vikings. Good for the Broncos. Maybe they're the ones that caused them to win. You never know. That's issue number two. How about number three? The Guardians uh, charity work extends beyond the holidays. 30 front office members distributing food to more than 5,000 families at the food bank's Muni lot. It's not a once a year contribution. The team prides itself on being active in its community more than any other club in the country. And they have the numbers, by the way, to prove it. From the beginning of the season until its end on October 1, the Guardians had 44 players, coaches, and staff participate in community-related events. That totaled more than 275 hours of charitable work, impacting 61,000 people in over 263 events they hosted. The roster is full of players who are actively looking for ways to get involved, and if they ever needed any extra motivation, the Guardians Community Development Department has been through in providing work on and off the field. The Guardians president of baseball operations, Chris Antonelli, hosted Cleveland clinics at the ballpark. Anytime Andres Jimenez got out in the community, the Guardians won their games. The bottom line is, it's maybe all happenstance, but the Guardians have put in tremendous effort to show the good that can come from caring about your community, and the players took notice. 20 players on the 2023 roster put in at least three hours of volunteering in some capacity. Eight of them engaged in more than 10 hours. It's a big deal. And finally, a brutal season-ending injury to Joe Burrow, at least sparking some good. Fox 19 reported that Facebook group Chiefs Kingdom rallied its members to donate $9 to the Joe Burrow Hunger Relief Fund for from each of of them, the Joe Burrow Foundation supports Joe, 
and the website includes NFL fans trying to increase the bottom line of these dollars. Burrow's not going to play again this season, but it's another example of NFL fans trying to find a light in the darkness in a similar way how Buffalo fans helped support Andy Dalton's charity when he indirectly punched their playoff ticket back in 2017. They're a charitable group, clearly. And that's the grab bag, the philanthropic issue of it. Big stuff this week. Let's look ahead with our three to watch, the big issues for next week and beyond. Number one, Dana White confirms that the UFC is booked in the sphere in Vegas for 2024. He said, everybody keeps saying to me, you got to put the octagon in there. I don't understand how you're going to do it, but he's going to do it. James Dolan's Sphere Entertainment Company has point hosted several U2 concerts and drawn inspired reviews. The venue cost more than $2 billion to construct, holds 18,600 attendees and features 16K resolution wraparound LED screens that stimulates and simulates various environments to mesmerizing effect. The company reported losing $100 bucks in the Sphere's first quarter, but this kind of thing with Dana White will move the needle. That's number one. Number two, the McLaren Group renews Mercedes F1 engine partnership until 2030. Chief Executive Zach Brown said they built a brilliant and reliable partner. British driver Lando Norris has secured five podiums in the last seven appearances, and it looks like he may do it again. A great partnership for years to come. How about finally number three? Greater Manchester Football Club chair prepares for 3,000 charity Atlantic Row with an aim to raise a million pounds. The bottom line is this is not soccer. This is charity. And at the age of 73, one of the key participants will be looking at the Antigua 2 mainland race to raise significant dollars. 3,000 miles is daunting feat for anyone, but the million pounds would be reached, will be matched, an incredibly significant opportunity, not just for philanthropy, but we're looking ahead. We ought to be looking ahead at this. Thanks to Wendy Cridell. Thanks to all who put the show together. Thanks for you for listening and watching. Grab bag is always big. Philanthropy is incredible coming off holidays as we look to other issues. And obviously, we're in the right place as sports continues to heat up. Sports professor Rick Haro said the $1.3 trillion business of sports. You're on the record. Speak with you soon. <laughs>